Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you as I'm preaching and not just be staring into a camera. I really enjoy being here with you guys and getting to opportun- the opportunity to share God's word with you today. If you, as I said before, if you are, have been here this year, we've been going through the story of the Bible together. We started in the book of Genesis And then when we finished Genesis, we took a break for a couple months to go through the books of Mark and Romans, following along with the other international churches of Hong Kong during Lent as we got ready for Easter. And then when we finished with Easter, we've jumped back in where we left off and we're now in the book of Exodus. And the goal of this reading plan is to help us get a grasp of the overall storyline of the Bible, to see how each part connects in, not just as a small story on its own, but as a part of the bigger story of the Bible. And since we haven't been together in a long time in person, and we have some people with us today who are new or maybe haven't been with us on the journey through the Bible so far, I'm just going to take a minute to catch us up on where we've been so far, okay? So Genesis starts off in the beginning. God makes everything, sun, sky, moon, trees, animals, plants, people. And he makes the man and the woman, he places them in the middle of the Garden of Eden to rule over everything else that he has made. It's very good until the man and the woman rebel against God. They listen to a lie. They disobey God. They bring sin into the world. And things just go from bad to worse to worse and things spiral out of control. The relationship between humanity and God that's supposed to be great, it's broken. The relationships between humanity and one another that are supposed to be great are broken. We're filled with fear. We're filled with shame and guilt. And and it's just getting worse and worse with each generation. And it, it culminates in the story of the Tower of Babel where all of humanity gets together and they say, we're going to make a name for ourselves by building a tower that reaches up to heaven to God. And God comes down, he judges them, he scatters them and confuses their language. And you realize humanity is a mess and humanity has no hope in and of themselves for anything good to happen. But the next chapter, God steps in and he comes to this man called Abraham and God makes Abraham promises. He says, I will make your name great. You know, the people at Babel, they wanted to make their names great. They can't do it through their power, but I'm going to do it for you through, through my power. I'm going to make a great nation of you and multiply your descendants. I'm going to give you a land for them to live on. And I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And so the book of Genesis follows Abraham and his family as they go through the next few generations. Abraham and his wife, when they're very, very old, have a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and the promise passes down through the line of Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, 10 of them get really mad at Joseph, their dad's favorite. They sell him as a slave. He goes down to the land of Egypt where he eventually rises from being a slave to being the number two in command over the whole nation. And he, from that position, is able to lead a famine relief drive that rescues Egypt and the surrounding lands when seven years of famine hit them. During the famine, his brothers come down to Egypt to get food. Joseph recognizes them. The family is reunited. He brings them all down to Egypt so that he can provide for them throughout the famine. And that's where the book of Genesis leaves off. 
Now, the book of Exodus, where we are today, picks up 400 years later. We just fast forward 400 years. What happens during that 400 years is the Israelites have grown and multiplied and gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. The Egyptians have forgotten about Joseph and all that he did to rescue their nation. And the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, looks around and says, we have way too many foreigners here. If they rose up and made an army, they could take us out. That's not good. So he has them turned into slaves to do slave labor for the Egyptians. There's one one of the slaves, a man named Moses. He actually had to be thrown into the Nile River because they'd gotten to the point where they wanted to kill all the baby boys from the Israelites. But he was rescued by the Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in the Pharaoh's house. He, at about the age of 40, killed a man and had to run away to the desert. And in the desert, God appears to him in a burning bush and says, go back, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You're going to be the one who brings them out of slavery, out of Egypt. If you were with us online last week, this is what Evangel's sermon was about, that Moses went to Pharaoh. He said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way. So God sends 10 plagues, one after another, over the land of Egypt until eventually the people are like, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Leave. And as the Israelites are leaving and going away, Pharaoh once again changes his mind, chases them through the desert, chases them into the middle of the sea that God has miraculously parted for his people. And as Pharaoh chases the people of Israel into the middle of the sea, the sea crashes back down. Pharaoh and his army are completely destroyed. God's people are free once and for all from their slavery in Egypt. And then God begins to lead them through the wilderness to a place called Mount Sinai, which is where we are picking up the story today in Exodus chapter 20. And today we're going to look at one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the giving of the 10 commandments. And I realize there is a ton that could be said about this chapter. Like in one of my seminary classes, we had a textbook. It was over a thousand pages long. The entire book was just explaining the 10 commandments. So there's a lot that could be said about this passage, and we are not going to even like barely scratch the surface of it today. So if you're curious to learn more about the Ten Commandments after today's sermon, you're welcome to study it for yourself, to look more into it. I'm happy to recommend resources, uh, but just to give you a heads up, a warning, we're just barely scratching the surface of what could be said about this passage today. But what we're going to see is that proper obedience comes from properly understanding salvation. Proper obedience comes from properly understanding salvation. And we'll look at the identity of God, the work of God, and the commands of God. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to look at your word together today, for what a blessing it is to have your word, to be able to learn from your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, and that you speak so that we can know you and trust you and love you and follow you. So I pray that as we listen to your word today, you'd be at work in our hearts, helping us to grow in our love for you and our trust for you and our desire to follow you. And in Jesus' name, amen. So first off, the identity of God. So we're looking at the Ten Commandments today, but before we get to the commandments themselves, we're going to take some time to look at the introductory verse in Exodus chapter 20. And we're doing this because understanding this introductory verse, verse 2, is so foundational to understanding the Ten Commandments. The verse says, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now here's why this verse is so foundational to understanding the Ten Commandments. Our world does not like the idea of commandments. Commandments, they're too demanding. We prefer suggestions. It might work better if you do it this way. You don't have to, but it might work better. We like that rather than you must do this. You must do that. And, and the cultural narrative that is so dominant in our world says each of us should have the freedom to define right and wrong for ourselves. And it's a super widespread narrative. So for example, the vast, vast majority of people in our culture would assume you should have the right to have a romantic relationship with anyone you want and to express that any way you want. And they would, they would assume that that's true. Like you can tell it's permeated our society so deeply because they don't argue for this. They just assume that it's true. But even 20 years ago, that would have been wildly countercultural. If you made a claim like that 20 years ago, you'd have to defend yourself. You'd have to justify what you were saying and why you were saying it because it was not a widespread cultural assumption. But this belief, it has spread like wildfire over the past 20 years to the extent that now it's just assumed by most people in society without any type of argument. And if we accept culture's version of reality that each of us should be free to choose right and wrong for ourselves, any type of command feels incredibly restrictive, especially a command that claims to be from God. It feels like they're getting in the way of true human freedom or of us living our, as our true selves. And this is why it's so important the way that God starts the Ten Commandments with an introduction of himself. Because in order to have any type of binding moral law or commandment that, that actually applies to everyone, we need a lawgiver who's big enough to hold us accountable for obedience. If we're going to have commands that we all have to follow, we need someone giving those commands who can actually hold us accountable to following them. If there is no God, then any type of command is just one person trying to impose their beliefs on another. If there is no God, why should I listen to you and what you tell me to do? Because that's just you trying to get power over me. But if there is a God, if he's big enough to hold us accountable for obedience, then we need to obey what he says. And verse two of today's passage establishes the identity of God, which is the foundation for everything else that follows in this passage. Realize society's narrative of, of everyone being able to determine right and wrong for themselves, it only works if there is no God or if God's a pushover who doesn't really care what we do. It, it's sort of like a country. If you go to a country that has no leader, no laws, you can do whatever you want in that country. Now that country is going to be ruled by anarchy, which is not really ideal. But if the country has laws, if they have a ruler, it's going to restrict your freedom, but it's also going to bring order and stability. If the universe has no God, there can be no binding moral rules or commands or laws, but it's going to be a place of anarchy. But because God cares about us, he gives us rules so that we can have order. Which means on one level, yeah, society is right. These commands do restrict us. But the way they restrict us, it's, it's kind of like a seatbelt. A seatbelt restricts your movement in the car, 
But when you get into a car crash, aren't you thankful that you're restricted from flying out the front windshield? It's a restriction that, that actually saves your life and helps you to be able to live in a, in a way that's good and proper and thriving. And in the same way, yes, these commands that we're about to look at, they restrict us, but they do it for our good and our thriving and for the sake of giving us life. And as we come to the passage, remember where we are in the story of the Bible. The Israelites, they've just been rescued from Egypt. They've wandered through the wilderness and they're camped now at the base of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, God comes to them and he tells them, here's my plan. Here's what I want for you. If you will obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God comes to them. He says, I want you to be my treasured possession, my special people. And then he says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're going to be my representatives who go into the rest of the world and show them who I am and how great I am and who call them and invite them to, to come and follow me. And the Israelites, when they hear this, they say, absolutely, yes. Sign us up for that deal. We are in. And so God says, all right, great. If you want this, I want this. We're going to have a special ceremony to make it official. God has the Israelites take a couple days to prepare for this special ceremony. And then on the third day, things get kind of crazy. The top of the mountain is covered by these thick clouds and darkness, and there's lightning and thunder and sounds of trumpets that are so loud that the people are shaking in fear. And God speaks to them as they gather at the foot of the mountain. Everything that has happened so far in the book of Exodus, it's been building up to making this moment possible. God didn't just save the Israelites from slavery in Egypt so they could be free. No, he, he saved them so they could be his people, so they could have the freedom to live life as his followers. And this is the moment right where we are today. This is the moment where he's telling them what it means to be his people. And what's the first thing he says? I am the Lord, your God. Now, why would he say this? Don't they already know who he is? I mean, he just rescued them from slavery. He's brought them through the wilderness. And well, they don't quite understand it yet, who he is. Because what does it mean for him to be the Lord, your God? Well, let's look at it. First, he is God. He is the ruler of the universe. He has no competition, no rival, no equal. He reigns supreme forever. The Israelites, they've grown up in Egypt. They've been taught their whole lives that the gods of Egypt are the true gods. But God has just shown them through the 10 plagues, the gods of Egypt are absolutely, completely powerless. If you were here last week, Pastor Evangel talked about how the 10 plagues, each of them was designed to show how weak and powerless one after another after another of the Egyptian gods were. God has just put on a show showing the Israelites, these gods that you believed were real your whole life, they're nothing. I am the only true God. The God speaking to them from the mountain is the only ruler of the universe, the only true God. And like the Israelites in the wilderness, we also have been taught some wrong things about God by our culture. One of the leading narratives is this idea that, that God is dead. You know, back in the day, maybe back when Moses was alive, they had to believe in God because they couldn't explain things like, how did the universe get to be here? How did life arrive on the universe? And so they had to fill in the blanks in their understanding with God. But now we don't need that anymore because we have science to tell us the answers to all these things. 
And so we can get rid of the idea of God because it's outdated, it's unnecessary. But just like the Israelites, if we're going to properly understand and respond to the commands that God gives here, we need to hear this word, that there is a God. The God who spoke to the Israelites from the mountain is the God who rules the universe today. He has power and authority, all power and authority, including the power and authority to tell us how to live our lives. He has the right to tell us how to live our lives. He's eternal. He is unchanging. We need to listen to what he says because it's important for our lives today, not just their lives back then. These aren't just good suggestions for people who lived 3,500 years ago that have become outdated. No, these are binding commands from the God who rules the universe. Second, the Lord your God, he is not just God, he's also personal, he is the Lord. If you see the word Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, that actually is the English translation of the name that God tells Moses at the burning bush. When God shows up to Moses at the burning bush, he says, go lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses is like, who's sending me? Like when the people are like, who sent you? What do I say? And God says, tell them I am is sending you. Tell them Yahweh is sending you. This is the translation of that name, which means when, when he says, I am the Lord, what he's saying is I'm not just this transcendent force or power that's out there. No, I'm deeply personal. I've come down and revealed myself to you to initiate a relationship with you so that you can know me because I want you to know me. And then the third thing, the Lord, your God, means that God knows his people. He's not just the Lord God. He's the Lord, your God. He expects to have a personal relationship with his people that goes both ways, that we know him and he knows us. As the Israelites leave Egypt and they're traveling through the wilderness, one of the most constant lines that you hear repeated over and over and over is the people go to Moses and complain about him and God. And they say, did you just bring us out of Egypt so that you could kill us out here in the desert? Like it happens again and again and again. Like you get a little bit frustrated with them until you realize how much like them we are. But every time they say this line, what they're showing is that they don't actually understand who God is. Every time they say this, they're assuming God wants to harm them. God isn't out for their good. They're disregarding the loving, saving relationship that he is trying to form with them. And as long as they fail to recognize who God is, they're going to fail to respond properly to him. It was true for them back then. It's true for us today. Until we recognize properly who God is, we're going to fail to respond properly to him. Proper obedience only comes when we properly recognize who God is. He's the all-powerful ruler of the universe who has the authority and the right to tell us what to do, but he's also the Lord, your God, who knows you intimately and personally and is seeking what's truly best for you. So God starts by establishing his identity, but he still doesn't jump straight from there to the commandments. Next, he tells them of what he has done. That's in the second half of this verse. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They were all there for that, just in case you're wondering. It happened just a couple months before this scene. So why is he telling them again? Shouldn't they all know this? Well, he's reminding them of what he has done because proper obedience flows out of properly understanding our salvation and the God who saved us. Think about it. God, he didn't have to save the Israelites before he gave them the 10 commandments. 
He could have shown up in Egypt while they were slaved, gathered them all together, said, here are my rules for life, follow them. And once you get it right, I'm going to set you free. You can come be my people. He didn't do that. He could have done that. He didn't do that. He set them free first. And only after setting them free, does he tell them how to live properly in response to him. And this is how God's salvation always works. God freely saves and blesses his people before asking anything of them. But he also always, always saves his people for a purpose. He didn't free the Israelites so they could wander as nomads in the desert. He saved them so they could be his people, which requires a certain way of living. And it's the same with us today. As Christians, salvation is not just a get out of hell free card. Salvation is an invitation to a new way of life, life as the people of God. It's an invitation to a new way of living that's totally oriented towards God and built around his character and his priorities for us, which means obedience never earns salvation, but is always the necessary result of salvation. And this is super crucial for us to understand if we're going to respond to God properly, because if we don't understand that salvation comes before the commands, anytime we see a command in the Bible, we're going to assume this is what I must do in order for God to love me. If you know the story of Jesus, this is the constant problem the Pharisees had. They looked at the commands of the Bible. They said, if we do these things, then God will love us. And they were constantly getting it wrong. They thought they were trying to earn God's love, but that's not how God works. He saves us through his grace, nothing that we have done to deserve it. And then he calls us to respond in obedience to what he has already done and the ways he has already shown us love. But it's also important for us to understand the other side of this. We have to understand that God not only saves us from our sin, but also for a new life in him. If we only understand salvation as salvation from sin and its consequences and not salvation to this new way of living as God's people, then anytime we see a command in the Bible, we're not going to know what to do with it. Because what difference does that make for my life? Who cares? I don't, that doesn't apply to me anymore. I've been set free from the consequences of that, but we don't understand that actually we've been set free so that we can live a new style of life. God saves us freely by grace, so that we can live lives of obedience to him. And these introductory reminders about God's character and about the salvation that he's already accomplished for them, they're so essential because they and we will never properly obey the commands that God gives us until we understand the foundational truths of who he is and what he has already done. Here's what I mean. You look at the Ten Commandments, it says, do not lie. Why do we lie? We lie because we actually don't believe that God's going to save us. So we think that we need to take matters into our own hands and twist the truth a little bit to rescue ourselves. The only way we're ever going to be set free from our desire to lie, and we're actually going to tell the truth from a joyful and loving heart, is when we understand that God is our Savior. Or another one, the Ten Commandments, they say, don't steal. Why do we steal and take things that aren't ours? Because we don't believe that God's going to provide for us. So we take matters into our own hands and take things that don't belong to us. The only way we're ever going to be set free from stealing is when we understand that God is generous and good and loves us and provides for us. Or one more, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why don't we keep the Sabbath? Well, it's because we believe that our well-being and provision 
isn't going to come from God. It's going to come from us working and working and working. And so we don't give God the space to provide for us by taking a day off each week. It's only when we understand that God's in charge, that he cares about us personally, and that he works in history to rescue us, that we're actually going to follow this command from a joyful and loving heart. Proper obedience flows out of properly understanding God's character and work, which is why God starts out the Ten Commandments by reminding his people of his character and his work. Because until we understand who he is, and until we understand what he's already done for us, we're never going to obey him in the way that he wants and deserves to be obeyed. But once we know who he is, once we understand what he's done for us, that actually sets us free to follow his commands from a joyful and loving heart. So now that we've looked at the introduction, let's look at the commands of God. What are the commands? Fun fact, a little tangential, but everyone agrees there are 10 commandments. Different traditions break up the 10 commandments differently. Did you know that? The Jewish people divided differently than the Catholic people divided differently than Protestants. So I'm going to go through the 10 commandments, the way that I learned them growing up, which is in line with the Protestant tradition. If it's different than what you learned the 10 commandments to be growing up, that's why. So number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Given the context of where we are in the story, this makes perfect sense. The Israelites have just watched this God who is speaking to them from the mountain show how powerless and weak the gods of Egypt are. And they always thought that those were the greatest gods. So if those are the ones that are weak and powerless, this is the only true God in all the earth. To worship another God next to him or on the same level as him or above him, it's foolish because he's the only true God. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any other idol. Do not bow down to them or serve them. Now, if this is an image of a false God, you've already broken commandment number one. You don't really need this extra command. But this also applies to images that are supposed to represent the true God, the one speaking to them from the mountain. And remember, as he says this, the Bible tells us God has actually already filled the earth with images of himself. If you want to know what they look like, turn and look at the person next to you. Because the Bible says that we, as humanity, are God's image bearers. Which, which means to try to create images that capture the essence of who this God is. It's offensive not only to God, but also to all of us who bear his image. Because it necessarily reduces the beauty and complexity of who he is. God has already filled the earth with his image. He doesn't need us to try and one-up him. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, this can apply to things like using the name of Jesus as a swear. It can also apply to things like calling yourself a Christian and then living as if Christianity makes absolutely no difference in your life. Because what you're doing when you do that is you're attaching yourself to the name of Jesus and then dragging the name of Jesus through the mud by the way that you're living. It's treating God's name in a way that says, this is not valuable, this is not important. The Bible teaches that God's name communicates the essence of who he is. To treat his name as cheap or as common or as unworthy shows that we actually think very little of God himself. So I wanna ask, how can you live in a way this week that shows that you honor God's name and see it as valuable? Four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Once a week, Set aside 24 consecutive hours where you don't do work. 
And it reminds us in the passage, God modeled this for us in creation. He worked six days and then he rested on the seventh day. To refuse to follow this command is essentially to say, God, I don't trust you to provide for me unless I'm working all the times to make things happen. And I realize this is probably the least popular of the 10 commandments today, at least among Christians. But God includes it right in the list with things like don't murder and don't commit adultery. Clearly God sees this as a big deal. So in light of God's identity and in light of the salvation he's given you, what would it look like for you to move towards having this type of 24 hour break in your week each week? I realize many of us are at a place where we can't just like do that starting this week, but what would it look like for you one week from today to be one step closer to being in that place? Five, honor your father and mother. If, if we have small children, it's easy to see how this applies to them. Obey them, do what your parents say. But realize the group that's gathered around the mountain this, listening to this, most of them are not small children. Most of them are adults like us. And God gives this command to a group of adults, which means there's something for us in this passage too. What does it mean for you and me to honor our father and mother? Given where you are in your relationship with your parents, what does it look like to honor them this week? For some of us, that may mean sending our parents money to help support them. For some, it may mean just calling our parents to let them know that we care about them. Maybe for some of us, it means listening to our parents' advice. Maybe it means something else. I don't know. What does it mean for you to honor your father and mother this week? Number six, do not murder. Now, hopefully, hopefully, we don't have anyone here who's struggling with this on a physical level right now, hopefully. But Jesus says that this command applies not just physically, but also at the heart level. It includes things like being angry with one another, calling one another fools, which means, men, if your wife gets a little upset with you because she's asked you three times to take out the trash and you still haven't done it, and there's that feeling in your heart that just wants to like yell at her and lash out, leave me alone! and then to like guilt trip her for all the things she doesn't do in the house, you're actually breaking this command. And wives, if your husband hasn't taken out the trash after you've asked him three times and you just want to yell at him about how he never does chores around the house because there's anger in your heart that's spilling over, you are struggling with this command. We all struggle with this on some level every single day. The key to obedience in this command is not just to try harder to do better. No, we need our hearts transformed by Jesus so we can actually have love for others pour from our hearts instead of lashing out in anger. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Again, Jesus applies this one at the heart level. He says to look at someone with lust in your heart is to commit adultery with them in your heart which means you're not just committing adultery when you climb into bed with someone else's spouse. You're also committing adultery when you do things like look at pornography. This command, it extends to all sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman. That's the relationship where God designed for human sexual relationships to take place. And if you are here today and you're struggling with lust or pornography or adultery, I encourage you, find someone in the church that you trust and talk with them about it. Don't struggle with this alone. God has given you a church family to help you in this fight. Number eight, do not steal. Don't take things that belong to others. Don't seek to rip people off in business deals that swindle them out of money. 
Number nine, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Don't say things about others that aren't true. Don't try to mislead others with your words. And number 10, don't covet. Now, this is the only one of the 10 commands that, at least in the original 10, explicitly addresses the heart level. But this command shows us God's not only concerned with our external behavior, he's also concerned with the internal attitudes of our heart that control our external behavior. This is probably where Jesus got his understanding that things like murder and adultery, actually the heart level applies for them too. Because if you have a super attractive coworker and you never actually do anything with them physically, but you go home every night and you lay in bed imagining it, that shows that you have a heart that's far from God. You're, you're coveting, you're, you're believing that God is withholding from you. Like all the other commands, coveting comes from a heart that fails to see God for who he truly is. A heart that covets is a heart that believes God is withholding, not generous. A heart that covets is a heart that believes there are things that would make us happy if we could have them, but God is unfairly keeping us from them. And if we feed this attitude of the heart and these false views of God, it's gonna lead us to act out in ways that break the other nine commandments. So those are the 10 commandments. And I realize we cannot do them all perfectly, especially once we understand how they apply at the heart level. The New Testament actually tells us part of the reason God gave us these commandments is to show us how impossible it is for us to obey. Because the goal is not for us to earn our own salvation. The goal is for us to see, I can't do it. And for that to drive us to Jesus as the only one who can. It's to lead us to trust him for salvation that we cannot earn for ourselves. But once we've trusted him, It's not just so we can do whatever we want. It's so we can live as the people of God, a people who seeks to live under God's commands, to live in line with who God is and and who seeks to obey God's commands with obedience that, that flows from a pure heart that's motivated by love. These commandments, they're a good gift from God. They're an invitation to a deeper life in relationship with him. Obedience never earns our salvation, but it's always the proper response once we understand how God has rescued us. And we're never gonna obey properly until we properly understand who this God is who gave us these commands and how he saves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has authority, but you're also a God who's personal, who reaches out and and lets us know you and takes the time to get to know us. Thank you that you are a God who rescues, that you rescued the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt and that through Jesus and his death on the cross, you have rescued us from our slavery to sin. Pray that you would give us hearts this week that that obey you from a place of joy and not a place of of feeling guilt-tripped or burdened or overwhelmed or trying to earn your love, but that we would find joy in obedience. God, we love you. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been joining us on Zoom, something new that we started on Zoom that we didn't really do before, but that I think many of us have really enjoyed and that we'd like to continue, is we've had a brief time after the sermon each week to just share with one another about something that stuck out to us from the sermon. And I realize with social distancing, we can't get into groups of like five or six like we normally would online. But I encourage you to take like the next two minutes turn to the person sitting next to you and just share with them what's one thing that stuck out to you from today's sermon, maybe something that you could take away for your life this week or something that was interesting that 
you just want to think about more. So we're going to take a couple minutes, just turn to the person next to you and share, and then we will continue with what's next in a couple minutes. <laughs> 